Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Abrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we thank you for this Shabbat, for this opportunity you have given us to gather together as Mishpachah's family to worship before you and to enter into uh, kingdom worship, kingdom praise before you. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to be united as one in your Ruach HaKodesh and your Holy Spirit. I ask that as we open up your word today, that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that it will be your voice heard, that nothing of me will be involved except that which you have ordained specifically for this purpose. And Father, I pray that you will speak into our hearts and our lives in such a way that we leave this place ready to impact the world for your kingdom and for your good name. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen. So this week we read Parsha Korach, uh, which comes from Numbers 16 through 18. Um, it's a really interesting Parsha for a lot of reasons, but in particular because we see one of the most unique ways for somebody to die. Um, or at least I think it's one of the most unique ways for somebody to die, uh, which we'll get to in just a moment. But if you have your scriptures, go ahead and open up to Numbers chapter 16, begin with verse 1, and we're going to dive right into this. Verse 1, now Korah, son of Ishar, son of Koath, son of Levi, and sons of Reuben, Dayton and Aviram, sons of Eliab, uh, and on the son of Pelet, rose up against Moses and took 250 men from Ben Israel, men of renown, who had been appointed to the council. They assembled, they assembled against Moses and Aaron. They said to them, you've gone too far. All the community is holy, all of them, and Adonai is with them. Then why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of Adonai? Uh, you know, it's interesting as we read this Parsha, we're going to pause there. It's interesting as we read this Parsha that the overarching theme of this particular Parsha is the idea of rebellion, right? So we see it in Korach, we see it in Dayton and Aviram, we see it in On, we see it in the reality of what the nation of Israel does after these men are all uh, killed because of the rebellion. We see the rebellion and what they do. We saw rebellion in last week's Parsha. Uh, where Israel sends spies into the wilderness, the spy or into the promised land, sorry, the spies come back to the wilderness and they bring a rebellious evil report about the truth of the promises of God. And then the nation of Israel as a whole becomes rebellious against what God had called them to do in taking the promises of God and instead choose to stay in the wilderness and ultimately an entire generation, the first generation of Israel dies off in the wilderness over the course of the next 38 years because of that rebellion. And so we see this idea of rebellion uh, come up over and over again, but in particular, it's the overarching theme of this Parsha as a whole. And what's really interesting about rebellion itself is that typically rebellion is rooted in some sort of a lie, right? But that lie is usually based in some sort of half-truth. So if we go to Matthew 3 and 4 uh, and Luke 3 and 4 and we see Yeshua tempted by the enemy, right? The, the enemy is tempting him with the Bible. He's quoting biblical passages, quoting, quoting prophecy to him. He's using truth or in this case half-truths to try and tempt Yeshua to do something rebellious. <clears throat> Yeshua ends up retorting that with more scripture that proved that the enemy was an idiot. Uh, we go to Genesis 3 with the serpent approaching Chava and Adam, uh, Adam and Eve. And as he approaches Adam and Eve, he uses half-truths. 
the Lord didn't really say you would die, right? And what he meant was the Lord didn't say you were just going to drop dead right here and now if you eat that fruit, right? Because he didn't, right? And so he used this half-truth to cause a rebellion in Adam and Eve. And they end up eating the fruit, and they, sure enough, they don't die immediately, but they do die eventually. They were created for eternity, and they choose to die instead. They choose to be tempted and to give in to temptation and sin instead. And so we see that rebellion is often uh, rooted in a lie, but that lie is rooted in some sort of a half-truth which is the case here with, uh, with Korach, Datan, and Abiram, right? They go to Moses in verse 3. They say they assembled against Moses and Aaron. They said to them, you've gone too far. All the community is holy, all of them, and Adonai is with them, right? That's true. The entire nation. We go back to Exodus 19 and 20. That's exactly what God said. I've called you to be a holy people. I've called you to be mine. I've called you to be my inheritance. It's absolutely true. The entire nation is true, is holy, all of them, no doubt about it. And uh, Dayton and Abiram and Korach recognize that this is truth. And they use this truth as a half-truth to ultimately feed into a lie that causes a great rebellion. And ultimately, 14,000-plus people, I think it is, die. Because and that's separate from the 250 that die uh, that were with them and then uh, Korach, Dayton, and Abiram. That's separate from that's 14,000 plus people plus the, the 250 plus people that rebelled or revolted against uh, Moses and Aaron. So here they are. They stand before Aaron and they're standing. It's, it's perceived here in the text that they're doing this in front of the entire nation. So not only they are undermining the authority of Moses and Aaron, but they're doing so in front of the entire nation, Right? And so they say, you've gone too far, all the community is holy, all of them, and Adonai is with them. Then why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of Adonai? Verse 4, this is the key. I love this about Moses, and I love this about Aaron, the way they respond every single time that Israel does something stupid. Every time, verse 4, when Moses heard this, he fell on his face. It's not like he fell in hiding. He didn't suddenly go into ostrich mode and bury his head in the sand. He fell on his face in intercession for the nation of Israel because he recognizes what is about to happen. He recognizes what is going on right in front of them. Then he said to Korach and all of his following saying, in the morning Adonai will reveal who is his and who is holy. They, uh, the one whom he will let come near to him will be the one he chooses to come near to him. Do this, Korah, and your whole following. Take for yourselves censers. Put fire and incense into them. And in the presence of Adonai, tomorrow the man that Adonai chooses will be the Holy One. You, sons of Levi, are the ones who have gone too far. It's really interesting because we backtrack to Leviticus. Who took incense put them on a fire pan and rush into the presence of the Lord when they weren't supposed to, when they weren't the ones chosen to do that role at that point in time. It was Aaron's sons. And they end up dying because of it. And yet here, these guys can't quite remember that far back to recognize that Moses is baiting them into a trap. It was a divinely inspired trap, but nonetheless, he's baiting them into a trap. And so they grab the incense pan the the next day and they grab the, the, the incense, they put fire on it and they rush into the presence of the Lord and God reveals himself in a mighty and powerful way and makes it very clear who it is. That, uh, that he has chosen to enter into his presence, to stand on behalf of the nation of Israel, and so on and so forth. And so what we end up seeing in the long run is that they go in, they bring in the incense. Ultimately, uh, Moses goes see. 
God has clearly chosen Aaron as his priest, as the one who will enter into his presence. He's clearly chosen me as a leader of Israel. It's nothing against you. You're just wrong. You shouldn't have done this. So the way that we're going to take this one step further to prove once and for all who the Lord's anointed is, is that if you guys die in some natural way, in the same way that everyone else in the world dies, then God didn't choose me and, and Aaron. But if you guys die in some extraordinary way in particular, the land opens up and consumes you right in front of everybody's eyes. Then they will know that God has chosen Moses and Aaron to be his servants. And so as soon as he's done saying it, I mean, he gets the words out of his mouth and immediately the ground opens up, swallows Korach and his entire household, swallows Dayton and Aviram and their entire household. And then following that, the fire of the Lord, just like it did with Aaron's sons, the fire of the Lord comes forth and consumes the 250 men who were leaders in the nation of Israel, who stood in rebellion against Moses and the Lord's anointed as the Lord's anointed. It's unreal to see how this all plays out. And as if that wasn't enough, immediately following that, the nation of Israel rebels as a whole against Moses and Aaron and goes, what in the world are you doing? Why did you kill these guys? Are you kidding? You brought us out of Egypt. And now we're going to die here. Why did you kill these people? And then 14,000 people plus die in a plague because of their revolt and their rebellion that was inspired by the rebellion of, of Korah, Datan, and Abiram. Dayton and Abiram, tradition says, are the two when Moses was in Egypt still and he killed the, the Egyptian guard who was beating the, uh, the, the uh, Israelite slave. Uh, tradition says that it was Dayton, Dayton and Abiram that were the witnesses that saw this that then cried out to Moses, what are you going to kill us too? They were fighting between themselves and he goes, what are you going to kill us too like you did the Egyptian? And Moses takes off running. Tradition says that was Dayton and Abiram and so there was, uh, if that were true, there was this like natural um, uh, division between them uh, because of what had happened and ultimately what we see here is when Moses called Dayton and Abiram out just like he did Korach Dayton and Abiram said nah nah we're good we're gonna stay at home we don't need to just know that we don't like you and we don't like what you're doing but we're gonna stay at home and they end up getting swallowed up just as Korach does what's really interesting is uh, and, and I love this reality is if we go to Numbers chapter 26 Numbers chapter 26 is recounting or counting the second generation of Israel. At this point, most of the first nation, if not all the first uh, generation of the nation of Israel has already died. And in Numbers 26, it's counting the nation of Israel again. And so in verse 5, it says, The, the descendants of the sons of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, by Hanach, the uh, Hanachites family, yada, 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 so on and so forth. Towards the end, uh, in verse uh, 9, it says, These were the Dayton and Abiram who were community leaders and rebelled against Moses and Aaron and were among the following of Korah and their rebellion against Adonai. Verse 10, then the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the, them with Korah, uh, whose followers died when the fire consumed the 250 men. These men serving as a warning. Verse 11, Korah's sons, however, did not die. You know why this is important? It's important because when we go to the Psalms, we recognize that there's a whole series of psalms that were written by the sons of Korah. And we go, well, the sons of Korah, didn't all of Korah's household die? Well, no. All of the first generation of Israel in Korah's household died. But the second generation didn't. Because the second generation were already prescribed to inherit the promises of God in the promised land. And they end up becoming uh, worshipers in the temple, in the house of God under David, under Solomon. They become head worship leaders, if you would, in the temple. And they wrote a series of psalms, including Psalm 46 that we sing quite often 
in our services here. Uh, it's a song that is mighty and powerful, and it talks about who God is and his glory and his might and so on. And so we see this image of although Korach did something detestable and evil and despicable, the reality is, is his sons didn't pay the price. His sons had an opportunity to learn from their father's mistakes. His sons had the opportunity to not only stick out in walking with the Lord and in being a part of the nation of Israel, but they got to walk forward in history and become some of the most important people in the temple service itself. As we look at this Parsha, what we end up realizing is that this rebellion is a rebellion rooted in a jealous spirit of the firstborn, right? And so you may be going, well, what in the world do you mean by that? Does it make any sense? We go back to uh, the sons of, of Jacob, the sons of Israel. Is, Israel had 12 sons, right? The first two that were born were Reuben and Simeon, then Levi or Le- Levi and Judah. Reuben was the firstborn. He was supposed to inherit all of the firstborn blessing and the firstborn rights of authority and leadership of the household, the, to be the priest of the household of the family and to be the leader, the king, if you would, of the family uh, of the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob. Instead, Reuben ends up sleeping with Jacob's wives, uh, one of his, his concubines, and because of that, ends up losing his firstborn rights. Uh, Simeon is involved in the death of Shechem, the, the men of Shechem, because he goes to defend uh, his sister, who had been raped by Shechem himself, and he, they, hey, he goes in with Levi, actually, and he goes, hey, if you guys uh, all go get circumcised, then we'll let you marry uh, our daughters, and, and, and uh, our sons will be able to marry your daughters, and, and they go, okay, cool, and they go and get circumcised, and while they're recuperating, they go in and slaughter the entire me, uh, village, all the men of the village, uh, including Shechem himself. Uh, and so because of Simeon's role in that action, Simeon loses his option to be the firstborn, right? So Reuben had the actual firstborn rights. It should have transposed to Simeon because of Reuben's sin. Instead, Simeon sins in a despicable way, and it then transposes, it actually splits into two parts, right? So we have Levi, Levi, who gets the priestly or, uh, ordinance. He gets the, or, uh, the ordaining to be the priest, the anointed one of uh, Adonai, who serves on behalf of the nation of Israel. And ultimately from Levi comes the Aaronic order, who actually gets to be the high priest. And all of Levi's sons serve at the tabernacle and the temple and the carrying of uh, the furnishings and such for those. The other part of that, which is the, so Levi gets the priesthood part, the actual leadership, rulership, the authority over the family, which ultimately becomes a kingship authority, then transposes to Judah, right? And so we actually see two prophetic realities because Yeshua is our high priest in the order of Melchizedek, but he's our high priest and he takes on that role of the Aaronic order who serves as a foreshadowing of what Yeshua would do as the high priest. But he's also in the direct lineage of David, who's of the tribe of Judah, who is that eternal kingship authority of the nation of Israel, who gets that firstborn authority over the family aspect. And so what we end up having here is that the, uh, the two tribes that ultimately cause the biggest, or families that ultimately cause the biggest problem here is Korach was part of the uh, Kohathites, right? Korach was actually the firstborn of the Kohathites. The firstborn of Levi, or of Levi, was Amram. And Amram's son, Moses, becomes in essence like a king over Israel, if you would. And his secondborn, Aaron, uh, I'm sorry, Aaron, who is the firstborn, gets the priestly role, the, uh, the, the actual high priest order. And his uh, secondborn son, who is Moses, gets the kingship authority, if you would, over Israel and leads Israel out of slavery in Egypt and into the promises of God. 
And you would think that the next place of authority over the Levites would then go to the secondborn of the children of Kohath. But instead, it skips the secondborn, which is Itzhar. And uh, Itzhar, Yitzhar, Yitzhar, his, his firstborn son was Korach. Right? But it skips Itzhar and it goes to Uziel, which is actually the fourthborn, the youngest of, Co- of the Kohathites. And ends up being that Eliphaz, Eliphaz, Elzaphon, who is the secondborn, not even the firstborn of the household of Uziel. He's the secondborn of Uziel. He becomes the leader of all of the, the Levites themselves. And so you have uh, uh, Korah, who is the firstborn of the secondborn of the Kohathites, who thought that the, the leadership of the family of the Kohathites, who's now been separated from the Aaronic order, right? He assumed that that should be his responsibility, didn't matter that he actually had a part in the role of the Levitical priesthood. He wanted the authority role. He wanted that, that, that uh, firstborn right ends up not only going to the lastborn of Kohath, but goes to the secondborn of the lastborn of Kohath. And he becomes extremely jealous. But then on top of that, Dotan and Abiram come from what tribe? Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn of Israel. So in theory, they're going, you know what? The firstborn rights of the priesthood and the kingship of Israel should be ours. Shouldn't go to the Levites. Shouldn't go to Judah. It should be ours. And instead, it goes to those and, and, and the Reubenites are left out to dry on it. Well, when we look at the camps of Israel, we see, as I said a few weeks back, that on the east side, which was the entrance to the tabernacle, the way that we get into the, the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies, camped the Aaronic order, the, the, the families of Aaron, and the tribe of Judah, right? So you have them on the east side right beside each other. But on the south side, you had the Kohathites, and in the Kohathites, you had uh, Korach, and right next to them was the Reubenites. And in the Reubenites, you had Dayton and Aviram. And so you had these two camp beside each other that start to shadow talk, right? They start to, to, to talk among themselves, separate from the nation of Israel as a whole, separate from the leadership of Israel in a very rebellious way. And they begin to develop this huge uh, coup, if you would, this attempted at a coup, this rebellious coup, trying to take the authority that was given to Moses and Aaron upon themselves. And they complain that Moses and Aaron have taken too much on themselves. And they end up creating great division in the nation of Israel. Right? So when we look at the root of rebellion, rebellion is often rooted, as I said, in lies. And those lies are often rooted in half-truths. Here, Korach and Dayton and Abiram speak a half-truth. The entire nation is holy, aren't they? What makes you think you're better than the rest of us? Aren't we all holy? Which is an absolute truth, but also used out of context, so it's a half-truth. And it leads to a lie, which is that Moses and Aaron took too much upon themselves, which was the authority given them divinely ordained by God. And they end up revolting and rebelling against and causing 14,000 plus of the nation of Israel ultimately to die because of it. When we look at this, we see that rebellion causes so many problems over and over and over and over again. And often rebellion is because we're jealous as uh, Dayton Abiram and Korachwa. We're jealous of somebody else's gifting, of their talents, of their role. We're jealous of what God's doing in their life that we don't see happening in ours. Often we, we become jealous because we forget or ignore the fact that God has a divinely ordained role for us, that he's given us gifts and, gifts and talents to fulfill that role. And because of that, we become jealous of what other people are doing and wish we could do that. Often that rebellion leads to disunity in the community 
because then out of our anger, out of our aggression, out of our pain, instead of going to talk to the leadership or instead of praying about it, we end up going into the shadows. I, I call it shadow talkers. We go into the shadows and we start to, to, to talk to other people and, and uh, talk about this and that and what we don't like and what uh, other people have told us they don't like. And we begin to spread rumors and cause division and disunity. We begin to use half-truths, which ultimately become whole lies to seed rebellion in the community, which is what Dayton Abiram and Korach do that causes this to happen and causes the division and disunity in Israel. And the same thing happens in our congregations and our communities today, all because we can't rest in the reality of what God has called us to be. As we read in the scriptures, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. It says, for just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of the body, though many, are one body, so also is Messiah. For in one ruach, and one spirit, we were all immersed in the body, whether Jewish or Greek, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one ruach. So Paul says here in, in 1 Corinthians that although we each have different roles and different purposes, we're all part of the same body. And although my giftings and talents may be different than Diane's, it may be different than Jesse's, it may be different than Aaron's, it may be different than, than uh, John's, the reality is, is that in order for our community, in order for the body of Messiah to act and move as a whole unit, as one, as a chad in unity, it takes all of those pieces coming together as one. Just like in order for our bodies, literal bodies to move, it takes arms and legs. It takes our voice. It takes every part of us to be able to do what God has ordained us to do. And in the same sense, this is the imagery that God uses the body of Messiah. We go forward to verse 27. Now you are the body of Messiah and members individually. God has put into his community first emissaries, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then healings, helps, uh, leadership, various kinds of tongues. All are not emissaries, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All do not work miracles, do they? All do not have the gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak in tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and still I show you a far better way, and then he goes in to talk about love. And the reality is, as Paul says here, that each of us, like I said, each of us have our own gifts, our own purpose, our own reality that God has created us for to work within the greater body and within our communities, our congregations together as one. But we each have separate gifts to do so. And he says, not all of us are going to speak in tongues. Not all of us are going to perform healings. Not all of us are going to, to teach and to lead and so on and so forth. But it takes all of those different gifts and those different people to come together to do the work of God united as one. A lot of times because of that idea, that, that idea of jealousy, that idea of these half-truths that lead into lies that ultimately build into rebellion, we become disunified, we become broken as a community and even as individuals because we want what somebody else is doing in the Lord rather than rejoicing in what God wants us to do in him. We go to uh, Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 4. It says, For just as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Messiah, and everyone, uh, everyone parts of one another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace that was given to us, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our service, or the one who teaches in his teachings, or the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who gives 
and generosity, the one who leads with diligence, the one who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy, detesting what is evil, holding fast to the good, be tenderly devoted to one another in brotherly love, outdo one another in giving honor, do not be lagging in zeal, be fervent in spirit, keep serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, enduring in distress, persisting in prayer, contributing to the needs of the Kedoshim, extending hospitality and we go to Ephesians 4 uh, verse uh, Ephesians 4 beginning with verse 1 he says therefore I a prisoner of for the Lord again this is Paul urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were called with complete humility and gentleness with patience putting up with one another in love sometimes that's the hardest part putting up with one another in love I just want you I'm gonna reiterate that putting up with one another in love look as much as we all have our own gifts and talents and our own calling, and it takes all of those to come together, whether you like to admit it or not, we also all have our own quirks, right? We all have our own flavor of crazy. And with our own flavor of crazy, we're bound to annoy other people in tremendous ways. And the Lord calls us to move past that annoyance, to work with that other flavor of crazy, because maybe our flavor of crazy complements it. And he calls us to work persistently, to be united. He says, making every effort to keep the unity of the Ruach in the bond of Shalom. Therefore, uh, or there is one body and one Ruach, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one immersion, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given in keeping with the measure of Messiah's gift. Therefore, it says, when he went up on high, he led captive a, truth, a troop of captives and gave gifts to his people. So we recognize that Paul over and over and over and over again beats down on this issue of unity. In spite of the fact that we all have different purposes and callings and gifts and talents and flavors of crazy and whatever else, he calls us to be united as one. But here's, here's a, a far-fetched notion. What would you say if I told you that this wasn't an original concept for Paul? But instead, this is Yeshua's words. Let's go to John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is what should actually be called the Lord's Prayer. Often the, the passage, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, da, 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 is called the Lord's Prayer. That's really just an example from the Lord of prayer of how we should model our prayer, of how we should, should pray. Uh, but it's not actually his prayer, whereas this was his prayer. This is just before he dies, and he's laying his heart out before the Lord. Uh, and so in uh, the, the beginning of this, he's praying for the disciples themselves. And in verse 20, he says, I pray not on behalf of these only speaking of the disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their message. Anybody believe in Yeshua? Anybody in this room ever read the Gospels? You believe in Yeshua because of their message. You believe in Yeshua because of the message of the disciples. He's praying for you. I pray not on behalf of these only, but also for those who believe in me through their message, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. So also may they be one in us, so the world may believe that you sent me. So he calls us to be united in him so that the world would know who sent Yeshua. Let that sink in. 
He calls us to be united as one so that the world would know who sent him. The glory that you gave, have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me and loved them as you loved me so that the world will know that you sent me and loved them as you love me. There are literally thousands of denominations in the body of Messiah. I want you to understand that the word denomination literally means divisions in the body of Messiah. The body is, is not united. So if we, the body of Messiah, the representation of Yeshua, are, are not united, if we're divided, and Yeshua says it's in our unity that the world will see him. Who do they see in us? Rebellion is one of the worst possible things that we could allow into the body of Messiah. It's one of the worst possible things we could allow into our hearts and our lives because the enemy's greatest tool against the body of Messiah, by the way, the enemy is a tool also, but his greatest tool in the, against the body of Messiah, against the works of Yeshua, is disunity, is division. And the only way that he can divide us is if we let him. The body of Messiah is broken. We are divided. We are torn down and fragmented because we allow the enemy to root jealousy, to root division, to root disunity into us. We create rebellious movements and split. This is one of my concerns with small groups, I have no issue against people using small groups and congregations. I think it's, it has its place and it's got great value, but I've also seen countless congregational splits because of small groups. Because somebody leading a small group gets jealous of what the pastor's doing and he can't do, or jealous of what the worship leader's doing and he can't do. They get upset about some stupid little issue. And in their small group, they're now the pastor of that group, right? And they have the opportunity to feed their rebellion and their angst and their half-truths that lead to lies and root that into this small group. And now this small group all becomes angry at somebody that didn't do anything to them, at somebody that they weren't initially jealous of in the first place. And that small group breaks off and becomes a congregation of its own, started out of division, started out of disunity, started out of brokenness. The reality is, is we are called to be whole, to be united in Messiah, united in the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. If we are divided, we're not divided because of God. God doesn't call for division. God does lead us to discipline, but when he calls us to discipline, it's for the purpose of correction and restoration. It's not for the purpose of division. What we see in this week's Parsha, with Korach, Deitan, and Aviram, is a heart given over to a rebellious spirit rooted in division, rooted in lies because of half-truths. And it allows for the nation as a whole to let rebelliousness, to let division root itself in the community. And they all rebel. They all revolt against Moses in one way or another, just in this week's Parsha. Whereas if each of us would recognize our own gifts and talents and calling, our, what we are led and ordained by the Ruach HaKodesh to do and walk fervently in, I hate cables, walk fervently in that, in the body of Messiah, allowing ourselves to be united cohesively with the next guy or with the next lady, 
so that in that cohesiveness of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Spirit of God can use our individual gifts and talents that he gave us for his purposes to fulfill his purposes. But a lot of times we go, oh, I wish I could be a worship leader. Oh, I wish I could be a, oh, I wish I could be a rabbi. By the way, you don't. <laughs> Take it from me. If you become a rabbi or a pastor, it is totally because God wanted you to be. Not because you wanted to be. All right? Read Korach, and you'll know why being a rabbi is not awesome sometimes. All right? Uh, people can be people. I won't word it the way I normally do because my wife gets annoyed when I do. But people can be people. And often people are the worst part of ministry. Uh, but the reality, I think Yeshua shows us that too. Uh, but the reality is, is that when we operate in our gifts, not trying to operate in somebody else's, but we operate in our gifts, we come together united in the Holy Spirit, united in Messiah. We can do limitless things for the kingdom of God. The only limitation we have is division, disunity, and rebellion. That's it. That's the only limitation we have. We serve a limitless God. And with or without us, he's going to do what he needs to do. But he prefers to do it with us. And so I want to encourage you today as we close the message. I want to encourage you today. If you found yourself ever in your walk with the Lord, even some of you, it may have been recently in a position where you are jealous of somebody else's gifts and calling. Or you're jealous of what God's not using you to do, but he's using somebody else for. Or you're angry with somebody, whether it's a real issue or a perceived wrong, and you haven't approached them, as Matthew 18 says, to bring restoration. Not for the purpose of just calling them out and being a jerk, but for the purpose, the true purpose of restoration. If you haven't approached somebody to fix that relationship, today's the day. Because those are the half-truths that lead to lies that ultimately lead to rebellion and division and disunity and are nothing but problematic for the message of God, for the truth of the kingdom of Messiah. Because it's in that disunity of the body of Messiah that the world around us doesn't see Messiah in us. They see the father of lies. But if we can come together united as one in Messiah then the world will see him in us and who sent him in us. And they'll know without a shadow of a doubt that God is at work in our midst. And I believe this is the ultimate reality and the message that comes from Parsha Karach. Is rebellion is bad, unity is good. Let's come together united in Messiah and the Ruach HaKodesh. For once, especially in this day and age, for once, the body of Messiah has to be united. This is why we build relationships with churches in the area. Because although we may look different, act different, worship different, we're all part of the same body. And I'd rather come together in unity on the thing we can agree upon, which is Yeshua and the Ruach, than to be divided on all the tedious little things that we may not agree on. Because the reality is, is none of those are as important as the Ruach and Messiah. And the same is true in our local community, our local congregation. The same is true here in Congregation Mayim Chaim. We must be united. We can't be divided. We can't be going and running in 30 different directions. It doesn't work. We have to be united as one front, allowing for God to use his gifts and talents that he has blessed us individually with in a corporate expression so that people will see Messiah 
in us. Abrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we thank you that you are a glorious, loving, caring God. We thank you that you desire nothing more than to use us for your purposes, for your good, for your kingdom, that you have called us to be restored and reunited to you in the blood atonement of Messiah, that you have infilled us with your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit, to be able to perform the works of your kingdom so that others will see the power and might of God in their midst. And Father, we thank you that in these various gifts and talents you've given us, you've called us to be united as one, cohesively brought together in you so that together we can change the world around us. Father, I pray right now, B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua Mashiach, against any spirit of division, any spirit of, of disunity, any spirit of rebellion, and anybody in this community, anybody listening to this message, any of us right now, Father, that you will break down those strongholds and those barriers, that you will bring back a restoration and renewal of relationship across the board, that we will be united cohesively in a greater way because of the work of your Ruach HaKodesh in our midst. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen and Amen.